From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. As Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month enters its final week, we chat with the doctor from the American Cancer Society. About 12 to 13% of those diagnosed are actually under 50, and that's a growing statistic. It's the only demographic where colorectal cancer incidence is actually rising. As well as a nurse navigator from Crozier Health who shares her own story of loss and how that helped drive her advocacy for cancer patients. He had very little symptoms which is, you know, that's the problem with this cancer is that it's allowed to continue to grow. Sharaday Howard catches up with jazz saxophonist and Upper Darby native Emmanuel Wilkins. Yeah, I grew up playing piano in church. And yeah, I would see people um, get caught up with the Holy Spirit or catch the Holy Spirit. And I would think to myself, man, this doesn't necessarily happen to me. I wonder if I can access this through the music. That's straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. It is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Earlier this month, we did hear news from the American Cancer Society that the number of patients under the age of 50 being diagnosed with colorectal cancer is growing. The updated age for screening is 45. Now, the messaging from ACS post pandemic has been to get back to our routines for screening for cancer, and people have been making their way back. Slowly. Joining me today to discuss more about colorectal cancer is Penn Medicine physician Dr. Carmen Guerra, who championed the Get Screened Philly campaign. Also joining us is Patty Hollenbach. Patty is an oncology nurse navigator at Crozier Health System. She unfortunately lost her husband to colorectal cancer in 2006, and she's become a fierce advocate for <laughs> prevention, screening, and care. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. All right. Well, let's first get a few facts across right from the start. Dr. Guerra, tell us how prevalent colorectal cancer is. Yes. Thank you, first of all, for highlighting uh, this condition because of the alarming statistics, uh, which include that about 153,000 individuals will be diagnosed just in this year alone. And approximately 52,000 of those individuals diagnosed will succumb to the disease. The alarming statistic is we're seeing in younger people, and by younger people, I mean those under age 50, about 12 to 13% of those diagnosed are actually under 50. And that's a growing statistic. It's the only demographic where colorectal cancer incidence is actually rising. So that equals to about 19 and a half thousand young individuals under 50 that will be told that they have colorectal cancer. And uh, about 7% of those individuals will uh, die of the disease. Uh, 37,000 individuals will um, die from colorectal cancer. And so we are very perplexed and we can talk about why that might be, but those are the most alarming statistics published by the American Cancer Society just this month. Okay, that's something that we definitely want to delve into. Uh, But first, let's talk a little bit more about uh, colorectal cancer. First of all, who is most at risk? Well, men are slightly more at risk. Uh, One in 23 men actually will be uh, diagnosed and develop colorectal cancer. And that may be due to some differences, some gender differences related to body weight, uh, the consumption of processed meat, 
men historically have had higher rates of smoking and smoking is a risk factor. And compare that risk of one in 23 to one in 26 women will be diagnosed with the disease. So that's a gender difference and uh, one reason why there is a more common disease in men. Other uh, risk factors include having a family history of colorectal cancer or a family history of someone who has polyps in your family, or you yourself have had colorectal cancer or polyps, you're more likely to have a recurrent colorectal cancer and to have a first diagnosis. Another risk factor is inflammatory bowel disease, commonly referred to as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Those conditions also increase the risk of colorectal cancer. And lastly, there are lifestyle factors that all of us can control that increase our risk. Uh, for example, the lack of regular physical activity has been shown to be linked to colorectal cancer. A diet that is low in fruits and vegetables has also been linked. Being overweight or obese is a risk factor. High consumptions of alcohol and tobacco, as we discussed earlier, are also linked with colorectal cancer. And lastly, uh, diets that have low fiber and high fat have also been linked. So there are some controllable factors that we can all uh, modify to reduce our risk of colorectal cancer. Yeah, well, we've all got some changes to make, that's for sure, because it sounds like the American diet and lifestyle, high fat, low fiber, we're running and ripping and doing a million things and we're really not you know, taking proper care of ourselves because we're so busy just grabbing whatever and going. But we can talk about the lifestyle That's and the changes. Um, when it brings us to Patty, Patty, your story, of course, you know, want to just let you know how I came across Patty and how we met Patty. <laughs> um, I put a story together in the beginning of um, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And in the story, I had old information from the Philadelphia um, website, The uh, actually the Pennsylvania um website for uh, colon cancer, their their health department. And it said that the age, and I asked them to change it, that the age of screening is 50. Well, <laughs> we got a letter from Patty who said, wait, no, no, no. Oh, it has definitely been upgraded is... to 45. And so um, I invited Patty to come in because she was talking in her letter about how she lost her husband in 2006. And uh, she's the mother of three. three yeah? yeah, Patty, let's talk about your story because obviously your husband fell into that same uh, demographic of people who were diagnosed, actually, in his case, way under under the age of 50. 50. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when he was first diagnosed, all of the doctors said to us, this is so unusual to have someone so young, and we're starting to see this a little bit more often. But at that point, there's nothing they can do. Um, And how old again? He was 47 when he was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. He had very little symptoms which is, you know, that's the problem with this cancer is that it's allowed to continue to grow because people don't notice it. He had one weekend of pain after a big meal. Uh, We had a big roast beef dinner on a Sunday night. I went to work and he called me in the middle of the night. He was up with pain in his abdomen. Uh, So in the morning, we got him an appointment with the primary care doctor. She ordered an ultrasound because she thought he had a gallstone. Hmm. He had this severe pain after eating Um, So when he went and had the ultrasound, what they found was that his liver was fully involved with tumor. He had what's commonly described as too numerous to count tumors in his liver. And at that point, we didn't know what those tumors were from. Did he have a primary liver cancer, which is unusual to have that much involvement. 
And working diagnosis was he had a cancer somewhere else that metastasized to his liver. So that workup began. And it was, you know, a few days, a few weeks of turmoil in the house trying to figure out what was going on. And I guess the following, maybe two or three days later, he had a CAT scan um, while they were going to biopsy the liver tumor. Um, and under CAT scan, they saw that he had a huge mass in his colon. Wow. But that mass was able to grow unchecked. Because if you think that your colon acts kind of as a big collection vat, it expands and contracts as it fills with stool. So because it's filling so large, a tumor has to be fairly large in order for it to cause symptoms. So mm-hmm. it, it finally did grow large enough that it partially obstructed his colon. And that's what that pain was. Um, he finally, the tumor grew large enough that stool got blocked up behind it and it caused a lot of pain. The location of it was kind of at the curve. That your colon has three parts. That's very close to where the liver is. So that it was, that's why it metastasized to his liver. So, you know, that began seeing the on, a medical oncologist, a surgeon, uh, and he had surgery within a few weeks. And then what followed that was three years of different types of chemotherapies. So we were able to keep him alive and keep him fairly um, at a fairly normal level, except he never went back to work as a 47-year-old with three young children. Mm-hmm. That's kind of difficult for a man to handle, any person yeah. to handle, yeah. So, um, you know, it was kind of a miracle that he did live three more years. Through those three years, we met so many people who were also going through similar circumstances. And I just have to say that family of other survivors and other caregivers kind of kept me and kept him together, you know, knowing that he wasn't the only one. And they're very generous with their stories and their advice um, never pushing their ideas, but always giving us something else to think about. Yeah, that, that's quite a story. And, um, you know, from what I understand, Dr. Garrett, and I think that Patty did allude to the fact that, you know, there are no symptoms. And from what I understand, once symptoms do present, it's not a, a good situation at that point, correct? Correct. That's correct. Um, first of all, I just want to say I'm so sorry for your loss. Your story is so painful to listen to. And it's um, just reaffirming for us to do the work that we're doing out there in communities, through policy, through guidelines. And, um, you know, I just wanted to express my deepest condolences to you and your family and your children. Your husband's story is emblematic of what actually happens in those individuals who are under 50. Because no one expects colorectal cancer in them, oftentimes, if they have any symptoms, it's often late. And if they have symptoms, sometimes they're not even taken seriously. And fortunately for your primary care doctor took those symptoms seriously and started an evaluation, again, not thinking that it was going to turn out to be colorectal cancer. And the symptoms are uh, off, like you say, it could be uh, pain, but again, that's a very late symptom. It could be bleeding from the rectum. It could be changes in the caliber of the stool. It could be unexplained weight loss and Mm. uh, fatigue that's new. And then on labs, the one thing that sometimes gives us doctors a clue is an unexplained anemia, an iron deficiency anemia, because the person's losing blood without realizing it. And so we find this anemia and we often start thinking colorectal cancer at that point. But because of this growing increase in uh, colorectal cancer in those individuals under 50, 
and knowing that we can't rely on symptoms in them, right? Because they're unreliable, those symptoms, they come too late. Um, in 2018, I was fortunate enough and, and honored enough to be part of the guidelines for the American Cancer Society, the update, which changed the screening starting age from 50 to 45. And that's what, you know, the guidelines that you heard about, and were able to bring back that information to the general public, are really trying to identify those individuals a lot earlier than we would have if we wait till 50. And, um, you know, I was at a conference, I'll tell you a real quick anecdote, And there was a line to speak after we introduced these guidelines. And one individual got up and asked a question about what we could do to educate primary care doctors like me, which is uh, my day job, and told us a story that she runs an advocacy group called Colon Town, and that the youngest colorectal cancer uh, diagnosed person in her group was 19 years old. I know someone who's 12. 12 years old. You know someone who's 12. Oh, my goodness. Yes. It's so important for primary care physicians to be the first. Sometimes these cancers don't ever bleed. You may never see blood in your stool, but if you do, blood is never, ever normal unless it's investigated. Um, You need to check it out. The colonoscopy shouldn't be the last thing you think of right now. These young people don't have real red flag symptoms. They're very vague. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. As the uh, screening age changed uh, a while back from 50 to 45, can we talk about some of the contributing factors? You know, what do we know about why we're seeing this in people that are younger? Well, that's the million dollar question, and we don't know, to be frank. By the way, it's not just colon cancer. Many of the GI cancers are on the rise, which to me indicates that maybe it's something we're consuming, right? That we're eating. Could it be those processed foods or other ingredients that we're consuming? Esophageal cancer, for example, pancreatic, and many other GI cancers are on the rise. Mm-hmm. So that is one theory. Another theory that's out there is that we are gaining weight, and that's a bigger contributor as a nation. We are uh, becoming more obese. Another factor is that some people have talked about the microbiome, which is uh, the good bacteria that lives in the gut and how perhaps that's changing. Maybe there's an effect that's changing the good bacteria that normally would be protective. Um, Antibiotic exposure. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there without very little evidence Um, And so we know that, however, it's manifesting as a different disease. For example, they're less likely to have adenomas. Um, In over 50, we're finding these adenomas, removing them, and that's leading to the decrease in colorectal cancer in that over 50 population. Whereas the under 50 population that's increasing is less likely to have those adenomas. And they're more likely to have the left side of the colon affected as well as the rectum. They're more likely to be diagnosed in later stages to have metastases by the time that they're diagnosed. And so we know the disease is presenting differently. And so maybe the traditional risk factors that we've been thinking about are implicated and maybe they're not. We just don't know enough. And what is an adenoma? You you mentioned adenoma. What is that? Uh, Yes, forgive me. It is a growth in the wall of the colon that lines the intestine there. It's a growth in the cells, which has the potential to become a cancer. 
And so we call them often precancers. So when we look under the microscope, we can detect some changes in those cells that make them different from normal cells. And so we can identify them. And fortunately, we have normally five to 10 years before they turn into a cancer, which is why we have you uh, individuals repeat colonoscopy in about 10 years or so when they're having no adenomas. But when they have adenomas, we want to see you five years or sometime sooner. I want to talk about the stigma uh, and the actual screening for colon cancer. I think when people hear that, they go, ooh, you know, colon cancer screening, we don't want to go there. But you do want to go there. Patty, I know that you've probably been talking about this everywhere you go. What are some of the stigmas out there and how do we start to break this? We have to get used to talking about our bodies and paying attention, using words. If you can't say colon or rectum, look at your poop. (laughs) Right. Think about your butt. Yeah, you know, that is very true. Dr. Garrett, if you could quickly just walk us through the screening, what is it like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the fortunate thing is it doesn't have to be embarrassing because we actually have take-home tests that we can do as one option for getting a colorectal cancer screening. And that's only for people who don't have symptoms clearly. And those are called fecal immunochemical tests is an example of a take-home test. And you essentially place a piece of paper on the toilet bowl before you go. And then they give you a little uh, wand to grab a slight sample and put it in a tube and then mail it back to your doctor. And it's as simple as that. Basically, it's just essentially having a normal bowel movement at home and sending a specimen. Now, um, there are about five other options. The other most common option is a colonoscopy. And that's considered the gold standard because the fecal immunochemical test detects blood once the tumor is there. Whereas a colonoscopy allows you to find these precancers and remove them. So it's a preventive test, not just an early detection of cancer test. But there are other tests. You might have heard of Cologuard, which is another take-home test where they mail you a box and you place a sample of stool and you mail it back. And that looks at not blood, but actually uh, DNA of colorectal tumors uh, that uh, indicate uh, whether there's somebody might be at risk for those. And there are other tests that are less commonly done, uh, including a CAT scan. It's called CT colonography and barium enema and sigmoidoscopy. So those are three additional options to the three that are most commonly done. Colonoscopy yeah. isn't the only answer. And a lot of people are squeamish about it. A lot of people don't have access to it. They can't afford to take off from work. Um, Because you do need to take a day off from work. You're getting anesthesia. You're getting put to sleep. And you need someone to come with you. So there is definitely some research saying that when you give a person a choice over which screening they want to do, they're more apt to do it. So, Dr. Garen, we don't care what screening you get done. (laughs) The best screening is the one that you're going to do. And Dr. Guerra, where can we go to learn more information about uh, colorectal cancer and uh, screenings and things of that nature? Uh, Yes, absolutely. The American Cancer Society website is uh, the most comprehensive website available for any information related to cancer, including how to access these uh, important cancer screening tests. Here in our region, we have Get Screened Philadelphia. It's working with health systems to increase access to colorectal cancer screening tests. Uh, Please check us out. All right. Well, Dr. Carmen Guerra, thank you so much for joining us for Bridging Philly. We appreciate it. And uh, Patty Hollenbeck, I am glad that we saw your letter, (laughs) answered it, and invited you in here. You are a champion and a warrior for this movement, all in the name of your husband. So um, continued success with your education and advocacy and and teaching. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. 
back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Charity Howard catches up with jazz saxophonist Emmanuel Wilkins. Emmanuel Wilkins, an Upper Darby local, like many musicians from the Philly area, honed his skills in church and around the way. But Wilkins also rounded out his education, studying at the Clef Club of Jazz, the Performing Arts, and the Kimmel's Jazz Residency and Creative Music Programs for Jazz, not to mention the Juilliard School in New York City. Now Wilkins is back in Philly, kicking off Jazz Appreciation Month, debuting his sophomore Blue Note recording, The Seventh Hand, on April 6th at the Kimmel Cultural Campus. So we sat down with Wilkins to hear more. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you so much for having me. So you're an alto saxophonist. How'd yeah, you get I into am. That? Let's talk about the beginnings, the origins. Uh, the origins. I, so I started on violin when I was three. Then I tried piano. I was so bad at both of those. And then... um my parents got me a saxophone in the, when I was in the third grade, and I got enrolled in the Clef Club, which is uh, on Broad and Fitzwater. That's where a lot of great musicians went through, all the like great jazz musicians of the last, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years uh, came through the education program at the Clef Club. So I was with uh, a lot of great teachers and a lot of great alumni. So it was a blessing to have that at like a young age, just to be kind of around a bunch of inspiring people, you know. And then you had the unique experience of being invited to the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. Sun Ra has had a lot of impact on you. Totally. But this particular orchestra in Germantown kind of ran things for a good minute. Yep, exactly. you were 12 years old when you were introduced. You're right, you're right, yeah. So tell me about that, would you? Marshall Allen was a big influence on me early on uh so he led the sunrise orchestra at the time and i mean, I, I wanted to be like him i he had this like red tie around his bell of the saxophone and i remember i got like one of those red scrunchies and put it around my bell he was also one of the first people to really tell me to play like myself and really embrace kind of my uniqueness in my playing i've adopted a lot of techniques from him for sure it's kind of amazing how like philly does this thing where it welcomes you in Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it allows you to kind of cipher off what you need and what inspires you. Definitely. And then you can create your own thing. Yep, exactly. It's a melting pot. It's like there's so much going on. And I think it's, yes, yeah, just the perfect kind of fertile ground for musicians in all genres, too. It's like not only jazz music, but hip hop, R&B, you know, the sound of Philadelphia, Gamble and Huff. I mean, you know. We run thick. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, like you got... Not only Marshall, of course, but Benny Golson, mm-hmm. Jim Heath. You've yep. played with these guys. You know these guys. Yeah. They've impacted you. Definitely. Yeah. How yeah. can we hear them and what you do now? Um, I think I carry these people on my back, just in my sound, uh, in my phrasing. Um, yeah, Benny Golson has been a huge inspiration, especially as of recent. Uh, Jimmy Heath was somebody who I got around a little bit when I was younger, and then a little bit once I moved to New York. I was at Juilliard. Uh, he came and guest conducted the big band and, and taught some classes. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are two of the greats. I mean, the Philly, it really does run deep. It's pretty crazy. And you're right there. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're right there. Now you've got a new also, album. Yeah. So Seventh Hand, let's talk about why you named it. So I was thinking about um, kind of Seven as being the symbol of uh, divine intervention or divinity and um, the laying of hands, the idea of laying hands and maybe this Seventh Hand being something laid on us, you know, something that happens to you, happens upon you that uh, grants you this opportunity to be a vessel or something. Oh, we've all experienced something, but maybe yours is just a little bit different. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Beautiful talent that you're able to share with us. Thank you. Something that you feel, it sounds like spiritual. Yeah, totally spiritual. Yeah, I grew up playing in church. I grew up playing piano in church. 
And yeah, I would see people um, get caught up with the Holy Spirit or catch the Holy Spirit. And I would think to myself, man, this doesn't necessarily happen to me. I wonder if I can access this through the music. You know, I wonder if this is something that, you know, musically we could all get to a point that we all could get to. And this was really cool. Let's talk about the time period in which you were able to like this is all over an hour span. Yeah. 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 Fifty nine minutes. It reminds me of Coltrane mixed with Sun Ra. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. That's great. Yeah, there's there's definitely I mean, so many free elements in my music. Also, two big influences of mine. uh, The John Coltrane Quartet has been um, probably this band's kind of superior influence for a lot. Alice Coltrane was a big influence as well, along with Sun Ra, you know. So, I mean, like, Sun Ra was unique. And I love using this word because I don't know what it is that can describe what you do, but also what Sun Ra was able to kind of pull out of people. It was not a possession, but it was kind of like something was pulled out of you. Totally, yeah. I think about, you know, just even like Sun Ra as it relates to like, you know, Afrofuturism and think about just escape, you know, imagine a new mode of living, you know, imagine, you know, his his whole thing with space was the place. If if we came from nowhere here, then why can't we go from somewhere there? That's what, okay. you know, they would always say in the orchestra. So, you know, I think about even this idea of creating alternate universes, alternate worlds, alternate yeah. modes of living as yeah. central to my practice, central to black practice, and also, yeah. you know, something that Samra really yeah. kind of instilled in me as well. I love it. An alternate way of seeing black people. Yeah, about totally. seeing black culture and yeah. what we can do, what we're capable of. Exactly. And who we are just naturally. We yeah. can be this too. Why exactly. Not? Which is also subversive to the state, which is great. You know, I think that's like something also a, a kind of a theme in, in Seventh Hand for me is like thinking about the black church, thinking about like black gatherings as subversive to, you know, any sort of state sanction. This was uh, probably one of the only times where I came up with the discourse before I really even had the finished product, which is harder for me. It's harder for me to think of something and then execute it than it is for me to execute it and then come up with the verbiage after. <laughs> I totally get it. People always want to ask, well, what's the process? What's the process? So yeah. I'm going to ask you now, what is the process? Clearly, it's different than it has been. Yeah, totally. The process for, for this record specifically was one of me having this idea in my mind. I, You know, I had had an idea of maybe what we could do as a band, where where I wanted my band to go at this point in our career or in our trajectory as as a band. And, um, you know, the best band leaders give agency to their side people, you know. Because, you know, eventually someone's going to have something special to say, too. Yeah, exactly. Add to that conversation, because that's so, what it is, is ultimately this conversation and sharing. You're right. And I, I found that people uh, function way better when someone feels like it's their thing, where they feel like it's, you know, 100% their own and they're giving a hundred percent man the music sounds so much better you know they show up yeah totally they really show up <laughs> i love that yeah, i love yeah. that so much you can hear it yeah well, thank you so much for joining us thank you it's been my pleasure thanks for joining us for bridging philly brought to you by gift of life donor program organ donors save lives be sure to connect with us on twitter at bridging philly and of course don't forget to subscribe to the podcast For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.